Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. My name's James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. With an election looming on May 21st, a lot of people are asking, what about the environment? Writing on the conversation, experts said that the government has failed to prevent the extinction and improve the state of Australia's animals, plants and ecosystems. They write that to stop this ecological crisis, laws that protect the environment must be strengthened, threats like land clearing must be managed, we need to look to the Indigenous people for leadership and work with the communities who are responsible for threatened species, such as regional parts of Australia. They estimate that $1.6 billion a year is needed to save Australia's 1,800 threatened species, which is just 7% of the money that has been promised by the government during the election campaign. In today's show, we're going to be hearing from two experts about some remarkable efforts to protect threatened coastal species, an example of what's possible when people and government work together. But first, here's an announcement. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards... Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Terns, they're those beautiful seabirds that you might see diving around Victoria's coasts and bays. You might even have seen a crested tern roosting on a beach. They're quite large white birds with big yellow beaks and black crests. Well, there's another crested tern found around the coast of China, except this tern, like many other seabirds, is highly endangered. In fact, it was thought to be extinct until it was rediscovered in the early 2000s. But now, thanks to the efforts of conservationists, the birds are starting to recover. To find out more, I spoke to Simba Chan from the, Jap- from the Japan Bird Research Association. Simba, can you tell us about Chinese crested terns? Why are they so special? I think that, well, the Chinese crested tern is one of the rarest seabirds in the world. It looks like a crested tern. I think you girls also have the crested tern in Australia. Yes. The bigger one with yeah. the crest. And the Chinese crested tern is a li- look a little bit, well, very similar, but look a little bit whitish. Um, it was actually presumed extinct, well, uh, in the 20th century because it's, uh, it's only found breeding in China and wintering in Southeast Asia, in, well, the Philippines, Indonesia, or tha- Thailand, Malaysia. Uh, but it has not been actually confirmed, well, uh, any, any, any confirmed, well, uh, records since, well, 1937 until it was rediscovered in the year 2000. 
and uh, and the global population then we estimate then was uh, less than 50 births. Wow. But we have uh, we started a well a project in China, and now the global population uh, is probably reaching about 150. How was the bird rediscovered in the year 2000? Um, in the year 2000, it's something like that. Yeah, uh, in Taiwan, they are well, uh, they are, they are actually they are designating a new reserve for the terns, which have they have the bridal tern, they have the rosé tern, which also may they may also winter in Australia. Um, they have designated about tern reserve uh, on the island of uh, islands of Matu. And the photographer well, came, went, went there and took picture of the turns, and then he, he found there is some very strange-looking turns. Well, within the very <coughs> the, well, the hundreds of turns, well, uh, the photo he took, and he checked with an ornithologist in Taiwan, and then he found out that that, that could probably be the well, be the mysterious well, Chinese first turn, and then later it was confirmed. That was the bird that has been missing for for about 70 years. Wow. So these birds, they, they move around the, the seas, around East Asia. Where do they breed? Um, they used to, well, they used to breed in northern China, in Shandong Peninsula, we believe, uh, because, well, there was the, well, the last record of lots of, well, Turns well, specimen collected was nine well nineteen thirty seven, uh, very near the the city of Qingdao nowadays, uh, but then they were gone. But there 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 were uh, twenty one specimen collected that we believe that must be collected from a colony from a breeding colony, and uh, but then. After that bird was rediscovered, it was of course it was breeding on Mazu Islands, uh, that uh, along the Chinese coast, and then the, some Chinese scientists they have surveyed the coastal area for the turn colony, and then they found another breeding colony in Zhejiang Province, not very far from Shanghai, not very far south from Shanghai, uh, but the but the colony was very fragile. Uh, because of egg collection and other things, and uh, it was discovered in 2004, but the turns were desert the colony in 2000, uh, 2007 because of egg collection, and we and that's the reason why that we work with the Chinese uh, team to for promotion of well stop collecting turn eggs and conservation of the birds and. Uh, then we have, then then we started to do use some American uh, methodology of well social attraction to hope to to, to restore the colony mm. uh, in China. Can you tell us about this social attraction? So it's quite it's quite unusual, isn't it? You you actually put model birds out on the yes, colony. Yes, that is something that well now well that social attraction I I think is. Invented in the 1970s, and also by, by super scientists. Well, I think it's well, uh, Professor Steve Kress of the Cornell University of USA. The 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 method is simple. It's just like some sometimes you hunting birds. You put the decoys, the those well birds that uh, maybe well wooden or carved or plastic birds. Well, they look like real birds. You put enough well. Well, decoys, and then you also play back the call of the birds in the colony to 
to just make it look like a, well, uh, a breeding colony of, of seabirds. Because those birds are actually well, like, to, uh, like to stay together in the bigger flocks, that you might attract some birds while returning to the, to the sites. But of course, before we set up everything, we have to make sure the site is safe, safe from uh, predators, uh, there should be enough food around, the site will, be, will not be disturbed by human activities and other things, and, and when we uh, make sure the site is safe, then we can try to set up those de well, set up the decoys and try to attract the birds well to well uh, to to nest on this well new well, breeding site. Now now actually it actually has been used for many species of seabirds and some water birds too. Mm. How fascinating. Um so they, they these birds are one of the most endangered seabirds in the world. How have they become yes. so endangered? I believe is uh you know that for some species um, they are widely distributed. Well, uh, they can be found in a much larger area. But some species, probably because they are very specific, or well, they are confined to a smaller area. The Chinese crested tern, we believe, is actually they confined to a very smaller area. They are they are breeding in China, Chinese coast, and wintering in Southeast Asia, and found nowhere else. Um, why they are declining, I believe, well, um, the reason for their decline is the, well, egg collection in, well, in the, in, in or along, along the Chinese, well, uh, coast. Uh, you know that, well, uh, in, well, in, since the 19th, well, since the 20th century, there are motorboats and other things, that, that means, well, traveling along the coast had, uh, well, has been greatly improved. The fishermen now, they would, uh, uh, more fishermen uh, go out to the, to the small islands to collect eggs, well, for, for food and, and for sale in the local market. And that was the time that many seabird colonies were clashed in, well, along the Chinese coast and all, and in many Asian countries too. Uh, some birds are slowly recovering like the the greater crested tern because they are widely distributed well if the local population been wiped out um, other birds may slowly move in to fill well uh, the, 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 the the space but the chinese crested tern they are only found in the very limited areas so that's the reason why they it's very difficult for them to, uh, to, to recover i think that we are very lucky because the chinese crested tern they found their last refuge uh, on Matsu Island, and Matsu Island has long been uh, a military, well, 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 forbidden area. So that's why that well, uh, human activity and collection has well, has been forbidden, and that's the reason why it sheltered the last well population of the Chinese crested tern. Mm. So these birds live in an area that's part of what we know of as the East Asian Australasian flyway, when birds flying between Australia and the Arctic. What are some of the challenges of protecting birds that, that live in this area and migrate through the East Asian Australian I, flyway? I think, I think the biggest challenge is we need to build up a very good, well, uh, international cooperate, uh, cooperation system, a good network, uh, that uh, all the countries can work together 
or, or, or otherwise, well, if, if one country is starting to protect well, or, well uh, the, the birds well, but, but, but they are hunted at, or, or they are at very great risk at other, in other countries, that you will not really be very, it will not be very helpful for the conservation. So I think that the, uh, the international uh, networking and cooperation is very important. I think just like many shorebirds, not just seabirds, but like many shorebirds in Australia. Some of the shorebirds in Australia, they were, well, they may have a problem, they have, may have, may face the risk well, while migrating well, uh, uh, back to the, uh, the, the, the way back to, back to Russia or Alaska. That was Simba Chan from the Japan Bird Research Association. And as Simba mentioned this year, conservation groups from Australia to China and Japan are putting the spotlight on turn conservation. After the break, we, after the break we're going to be hearing about another remarkable conservation story, this time in northern Australia. We'll be right back, and in the meantime, this is Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Out the Door. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Yeah. 
Hello, this is Archie Roach and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR. That was Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Out the Door and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Saltwater crocodiles are the top predators along Australia's northern coasts, but back in the 1970s there were only a few thousand left thanks to hunting for their skins. Today, though, crocodile numbers have rebounded incredibly after widespread hunting was stopped, and uh, there are now more than 100,000 in the Northern Territory alone. It's an incredible success story, but what's behind it? To find out more, I spoke to Mariana Campbell from Charles Darwin University. Hi, Mariana. So back in the 70s, crocodiles were driven almost to the brink of extinction. How are they doing now? Um, population has increased exponentially just about. Um, there has been a few studies here showing um, the increase and the Northern Territory government does a great job at keep tracking of, um, well, the numbers. They do surveys in a number of rivers and yeah, they're doing pretty well. <laughs> this is a great success story. Know, like when we look around the world, recovery of top predators, especially animals like crocodiles, it's something incredibly difficult to do. Uh, bring, an, bring back an animal from the brink of extinction to a very healthy population, it's something incredibly difficult to do and it's something that the people here in the Northern Territory should be really proud of. Can you tell us about your research? What have you found out about why crocodile numbers have recovered so well? Well, our research is actually trying to look at um, the impact of this increasing population and looking for um, factors that would have a, a, you know, assisted uh, crocodiles recovering so well. That is the whole point of the research. So, obviously, the the, uh, the protection, you know, they're not being hunted down anymore um, would allow them, you know, they're pretty resilient. They are an apex predator. They are generalist feeders, so they feed upon pretty much anything. They are not fussy. Um, so obviously what we wanted to look at is what factors uh, would have assisted, you know, apart from the fact that they are an apex predator and are no longer being killed in the numbers that they were back on the day for their skin. So one component of this research, so it's a much larger research project. This is just the first um, paper within this much larger project. So we have other um, papers coming up, hopefully, very soon. <laughs> uh, and the point of this particular um, paper was to look at, you know, there has been a change in what they were eating back then and what they're eating now. And although obviously we had an idea that perhaps that was something to do with the increase in number of crocodiles, the difference was actually much larger than we had hypothesized. It's, uh, we didn't expect to see such a big difference in feeding um, on what they are feeding, you know, that they would change and they would be relying so much on the terrestrial food web now. But it does make sense. There are, there's food available and they are eating. That's pretty much it. So tell us about this switch. So they've changed from what were they eating back at the beginning of the of the time when you started looking at, at the data, and what are they eating now? I guess the question.
question is not really what they're eating, but how much of each different of, mm. of each different prey item they still eat a very large variety of pretty much anything. They still feed upon. They're very opportunistic and they're generalists, so they feed upon anything really. But back, what we looked, what our data showed is that crocodiles from like 50, living 50, 60 years ago, they were relying primarily on the estuary for food or aquatic animals. So fish, shark, turtles, dolphins. But now, they seem to be relying um, a lot more on the terrestrial animals. So feral pigs, buffalo, wallabies. Um, and so it, it's, they still obviously eat fish, for example, of course, is one of the main, uh, is still one of their main foods, you know, mm. but they obviously, when we look at a, a number of crocodiles of various class sizes, we, that's what we saw that they, you know, the majority of the crocodiles are eating a lot more of the, those terrestrial animals mm. than they were back on the day. And I got a lot of people contacting me saying, I used to see them eating wallabies 15 years ago. <laughs> I still see them eating fish today. Of course, they haven't changed what they eat. They just changed the quantity of each one of those that they do eat, basically. Mm. They are just obviously relying on more on the terrestrial food web because they are more available to them. They are easier. They are accessible. How do you find out what crocodiles are eating? Do you have to, to catch them? Well, there's a number of ways of finding out what they are eating. Uh, what we did was not catching them. <laughs> that involves a lot of work, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, they Obviously, there is. So uh, crocodiles, they, there have been studies looking at their stomach content, including one of the uh, manuscripts that we cite in our uh, work. They did had the chance to work with park rangers, and work with problem crocodiles or, or finding carcasses and looking at their stomach content. And there's a large variety of items found in their stomach. But what we did, we looked into their chemical signature on the bones. Mm. So we looked at stabilizotopes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we gathered, it was basically the, the difference in carbon and nitrogen isotopes to look at where they fit on the food web and how much are they relying on different uh, food sources and compare that with crocodiles from 15 years ago. So it was all done through um, isotopes from the bones, bones of contemporary crocodiles and from the some specimens from the museum. Mm. It's pretty amazing that you can tell what a crocodile is eating from this chemical signature. Yeah, well, we can't tell exactly what it is. I can't say this is fish or what we can look at is comparing with the signature of what we have done is compared with what is the typical signature of, uh, for example, a barramundi, a catfish, a mullet, a pig, a buffalo, a wallaby. But also we can see the marine environment and the freshwater environment and the terrestrial environment. They have very different signatures in in terms of carbon and nitrogen. So, you know, I can't say exactly what they have been eating, but I can say it's more like that is around, you know, feral pigs rather than catfish, based on what a catfish signature looks like and what a feral pig signature looks like. Mm-hmm. 
Does this have any implication for controlling some of these feral animals that they're eating, like feral pigs and um, and feral buffalo? Should we leave them there no. for crocodiles to eat? No, we shouldn't. No, no, we shouldn't leave them because they are they are feral animals. They they do cause a huge impact on the environment. Uh, there was a big culling of buffaloes um, around the Northern Territory in the eighties. So their numbers have been significantly reduced, but reducing the number of buffaloes uh, actually opened a little gap for feral pigs to increase because they compete for the same niches. They, they compete for the same habitat. Um, the number of feral pigs around is really large, so and it's not great. They do ha- cause a big mess in our environment. So no, by any means, we shouldn't just leave them because they're... Um, the crocodiles are eating them. They are a problem. We should definitely look into managing those feral animals. What we don't know is how much the actual crocodiles have been um, assisting as barriers for movement mm. for those feral animals. We believe, and we we will definitely try and look into that further down the research project, but uh, we believe that they they might be acting as barriers for movement for those Pig populations or even buffalo populations. Um, when we talk about a buffalo, it's a much larger animal, so obviously it's a much larger crocodile and it uh, would eat a large buffalo. Whereas feral pigs are smaller, also breed on an incredible high rate, you know, like piglets everywhere all the time. So they, are, but it's, if you are a pig, you probably would not cross the Mary River. So, um, we do believe that might be a connection there, but it's something that we still need to investigate. That brings me to why are predators like crocodiles so important in ecosystems? Obviously, they're having a, a, a bit of a nibble on some feral animals every now and then, but why else are they important? Do you know, although we all know apex predators have an important impact uh, on any ecosystem because they are the top of the food chain, um, crocodiles, we don't really know the exact importance. There has been an article, a uh, work published a few years ago, showing exactly that, that we, we don't fully understand um, their role in the ecosystem. And, you know, they are a top predator, they are an apex predator. So they do bring a lot of these nutrients from the terrestrial food web into the water. And they're obviously keeping a number of animals, you know, they, they feed upon a number of other animals. So I would I would say that as any other top predator, they will help keep the balance in this ecosystem. However, their actual role, we don't actually know. And that's one thing that we are trying to understand just now. That was Mariana Campbell from Charles Darwin University. If you're looking for something to do on Saturday the 14th of May, head down to Point Leo and check out the Floating Gallery, literally a floating exhibition of local art that's best experienced out on the water. Grab a wetsuit, kayak, surfboard to experience some truly marine art. It sounds pretty wild. You can find out more at driftartsfestival.com.au. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. We'll see you next week, and in the meantime, stay well.